It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Let's get you right into the Jack Riccardi show. Jack? Are we not jingling anymore? We're not jingling anymore. They took him and they said... Boy, that was abrupt. Don't touch him ever again. So Shouldn't I said, hey, okay. I feel like we should have... Um, what's the word? Uh, tapered? <laughs> gradually <laughs> that's just shocking to me i mean i'm not it's like i'm not re- i've been waiting all day to do the show and now i'm not ready i that was that was shocking to me no one no one told me did that jingle throw you for a loop well no the jingles were at first the jingles threw me for a loop i'm easily thrown let's face it but uh, well look when, when you're you know, the guy, i got used to the jingles you know they were like, were like my comfort zone and so 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 did i and so when you do what i do you're you know story yeah. by story you know all these yeah. you know things are happening boom 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 right i had to sit back here and just kind of mentally absorb okay we're not doing the jingle yeah. I'm going to, yeah. you know, drop this, you know, we've got all these, you know, channels on our console. So I, I feel you, but I think the adjustment is simple. I think we'll be We're going to okay. make it. Yeah. yeah people, right. people are listening like, this is why I prefer podcasts. This is awful. <laughs> right. Is this what radio sounds like now? It's terrible. <laughs> all right. And young people are like, jingles, what's jingles? All right. Um, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to d- dive right in here. And uh, you're invited at 210-599-5555 to our joyless, jingleless uh Wednesday afternoon program. Um, so we're we're under three weeks to go before the midterms. Um, how are you feeling about the midterms? We'll talk about that, and we're asking you that on the JR poll too. Um, so this is how it looks to me. Um, the Democrats want to talk about stuff that they want you to believe affects you every minute of every hour of every day, and they refuse to talk about the things that actually do affect you every minute of every hour of every day, like inflation and gas prices. So they are really, it seems to me at this point, stuck with having made some very bad choices. It's too late now. I mean, they're all in on this strategy of the election is about abortion and Trump. But it just it's hard to miss the fact that even if you care about those things, you can't not notice it is impossible for you not to notice the hourly every day all the time reality of 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 trying to live of prices and so they've gone all in on abortion and their their view of abortion is almost sacramental in other words nothing can be said against it no limitations can be put on it it is it is heresy it is profane there's an almost religious devotion to it. It's not, we're just trying to make sure it's available, right? It's, it's sort of a oath of allegiance to it. You should love your country as much as these Democrats love abortion. And I get that they are trying to say Republicans are going too far with the state laws, but it's hard to accuse somebody of going too far when your view of it or your defense of it is so absolute that you continue it past the nine months, past delivery, you know, that's where I think it gets a little, uh, it, it gets a little weird. 
And if people start asking the questions about, well, where have you been? Like, you Democrats could have codified Roe v. Wade. Is it codified or codified? I heard somebody say codified. I, I've always said codified. It, you know, Biden is now saying, well, I promised to codify it on day one of my, uh, of the new Congress, but, but you could have done, you could, you could do that now. You have the votes now. You could have done it any time in the last 50 years when you had a Democratic president and Democratic majorities. You you didn't do it. So it's not only, I, I don't think it's the right pitch to mo- most voters, but I don't even think it's a very good pitch to voters that actually do care a lot about this particular issue. Like, Democrats just don't look very good at it. Um, and so the, the president made another move today. Um, he announced that uh, he was going to release some more, uh, I think, 15 more, 15 million more uh, barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is an emergency supply that we started building up 40 or 50 years ago or something like that. It, it's for wartime. You know, it's in the event of global chaos. Back when we were dependent on imported oil, you had to think about things like what if tankers are being torpedoed in the Atlantic or uh, what if uh, you know pipelines are being sabotaged or oil fields are being set on fire or you know there's a, an invasion of our oil producing countries. What is the rainy day that we're having right now? The only one I see is the Democrats are in a lot of trouble. <laughs> they're, they're about to get pasted in the midterms. My friend Tom Shattuck, who does a radio show in Connecticut, said in his podcast, Look at all the polls and add ten points to every Republican uh, in these polls. I don't know if that's if the ten points is right, but I I would tend to look at every race you're hearing a poll about and add a few percentage points at least to the Republican candidate. So if they say the Republican candidate's within five or six, they they're probably going to win it. This uh, strategic petroleum reserve move is pure politics. There isn't any way anyone doesn't see that. We're going to talk about it with Jason Isaacs from Texas Public Policy Foundation coming up. So the way I look at it right now is um, they're going to get hit, and they're going to get hit hard. And it's going to be very interesting. I'm talking about the Democrats. And it's going to be very interesting to see where the blame starts to go. Like, will Democrats turn on Biden? Or will Democrats say, we don't accept these results? I mean, that's a possibility. I've noticed a number of Democratic candidates, when the question is put to them, will you accept uh, the results of this election, they won't definitively say yes. Remember, they were extremely offended that Trump wouldn't, but now they're saying it. What about Trump, by the way? So let's say the Republicans do really incredibly historically well in the midterms. He is going to take the credit for that. He is going to say, I am the reason why. This means I need to run for president. What if they don't do well? What if it's a, a a much lesser wave than people wanted and expected? What will happen then? I have the feeling Trump will then pivot and say, this is because the party isn't listening to me. This is because the party nominated terrible candidates and didn't nominate my people in every case. I, I, I have the feeling that all the excuses on all sides are all written already. It's already been done. They're just waiting to see which one to plug in. All right, I've got a question about, um, you know, we've talked about 
drag story time hour and drag presentations in the schools, and people are offended and upset because kids are exposed to this. Often we don't find out about it till after the kids come home and tell us about it or after it's hit the news. So clearly nothing like this should be in the schools, um, period, full stop. I'm all for parents should raise their kids and parents should decide what values and parents should decide what to t- say about the world and what to teach. I'm all I'm all in on that. When schools take it away from you for any reason, that's wrong. Okay. Then I'm reading Sarah Gonzalez at the at the Blaze did a piece about how there was a family-friendly drag brunch here in Texas a couple of months ago. She um, she went to it, so she's not hearing about it, you know, from somebody else. It was billed for all ages, and it had um, a transvestite uh, male-to-female performer dressed as a kitten uh, singing about her P-word, uh, my P word is sweet. My P word is good. F me all night long. I'm sorry. I have to explain this to you. And this was a brunch that people attended at a club called Ebb and Flow. So this is different to me because this isn't somebody did this to your kids or somebody snuck this into the curriculum or somebody insinuated this into a public library. This is something that children could only be present for if their parent or parents brought them. And I'm really trying to understand, why would you do that? Like, in what what context would you think, I need my kid to see this? I mean, look, there are gay parents, there are transsexual parents, but even they, I would think, would say, this is not appropriate, this is not good for kids to see, these aren't words I want kids to hear or or repeat, this isn't the portrayal I want my kids to see. I mean, I'm not even talking about, conser- obviously conservative or traditional parents aren't going to go with anywhere near this thing, you know, but, but I can't understand why any parent of any sexual uh, orientation would, would, would choose this. What, what are we doing here? And I'm, I'm asking because I, 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 I get the premise that as a parent, it is up to you. But I'm asking why? What would be the point of this? I mean, it's this bigger questions like why, why are we exposing children at a younger, younger age to things that they don't yet need to know? Why isn't there any kind of childhood innocence anymore? Why can't we just have like a, you know, I'm going to take a breather. <laughs> When you're a kid, you should be able to take like a little breather before you delve into the world and uh, saving it and and uh, all these other adult decisions you're going to have to make. Apparently, that isn't true anymore. Apparently, childhood is is work. You know, we have to deal with everything and decide everything and pick our pronouns and we can't just you know play around and have fun and and be lighthearted and not worry. We have to tell our kids, you know, all all the evils of Trump and the Second Amendment, and you know, 
I know when I was a kid, you know, the worst thing was having a nightmare. It seems like we give our kids nightmares now. It seems like we're spoon feeding them nightmares. Anyway, that's that's something I wonder about with this whole thing. And again, the the story that she did at the Blaze is a little bit different from the ones we've talked about, only because again, those were. Hey, I just found out that they're doing this at my kid's school. How dare they? Versus these are people taking, there were kids in the audience for this thing. I saw some of the video. There were parents that took their kids to this. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking why. I'm not saying you did it, but why do you think? Um, yeah, why would parents take their kids to a drag brunch? Do you think? Or do you know? It's just weird to me. I, 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 you know, I will bend over backwards. Maybe I shouldn't say that about this topic, but I, I, I will bend over backwards to defend parents' rights to be parents. That government shouldn't get involved. You know, nobody should be nosing into that relationship. You teach your kids what you want to teach them. You give them your values or better values or whatever you want to give them. Um, I really don't understand this choice, and I want to. I'd like to. Uh, because this isn't even a good, e- even if you were somehow trying to convey to little kids the notion of sexual fluidity, this wouldn't be the way to portray it. I mean, this would be like, if you wanted your, your, your son to respect women, would you take him to a strip club? That, that, that's about as much sense as this makes to me. I mean, there are women there, I guess you could say. Here, here are some women who are on the job. I mean, real, that's that's how it looks to me. All right, what do you think about the midterms? How are you feeling about the midterms right now? Um, I have hesitated to say this, not so much because I'm afraid to be wrong, but because I have bad memories of how upset people get when things don't go the way they expect them to. And particularly I remember in 2012 when everybody thought at the end of that race that Romney was going to defeat Obama for a second term, and he didn't. I remember, I was on in the morning back then, and people were calling the show and crying. And I didn't know what to do about that. So I've, I've hedged my bets. I'm going, to, I'm going to stop hedging them now. I think this is going to be as bad or worse for the Democrats than anything you've heard. I think this increased turnout you're hearing about. I think the um, the polling, the generic ballot, this desperation move today with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, it's just not enough to even really help him, but the, he's, he's throwing everything at the wall to see what'll stick. I think the this almost religious devotion to the abortion issue I, and I'm not asking you to, I'm not telling you to be complacent. I'm not saying don't bother to vote, but I think this is going to be a huge red wave. I, I think they, even the Democrats know they've not made this, but what about abortion thing work? It just isn't working. People are in a lot of pain, a lot of misery. They are, um, literally reminded on an hourly basis that they can't afford things. They're having to make choices about things. And it isn't like, you know, if you went through some traumatic event in your life and you had to really scale down your budget, people are saying, I'm working as hard as I ever did. I still have a job. But all of a sudden, everything is more. I'm running out of, 
you know, paycheck before I run out of month. You know, I know people that are pretty careful with their money, and they're, it's not working for them. I'm talking about people that are spendthrift. These are these are responsible, frugal people, and they're not making it work. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Um, I'll also tell you that I think their only hope at this point is to keep you believing that you're not going to make it, that you're, you're, the result you want is not going to happen. They've got to discourage you. But I don't even think that's working. I don't see any sign of that. So in case you haven't heard, the early voting is heavy in places where it's already started, which is most states. It's heavy. It's in some places record. And that's how it looks to me. But what do you think? 210 599 55. Um, how are you feeling about how are the midterms looking to you? Uh, Chris is on KTSA. Chris, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. My, I'm old enough to remember 96 and the uh, contract with America, and I know we don't have anything sort of like that now, but I, I'm kind of like you. I think it's going to be at least that significant of a change or, or more. Uh, you know, I think in the last six to eight years republicans are hesitant to answer polls so i think they're consistently undercounted today yeah yeah. and you know if it's a four point generic lead on polling it's probably more like eight to ten um it's just my my read and take on things yeah no i think you're right about the under reporting and you know you look at places like you know i saw we're in new york that Republican running against uh, the Democratic governor, Hochul, he's only four points behind her. I know, um, that's crazy. That, <laughs> if that's happening there, then I I, I think yeah. probably, you know, the Georgia races, uh, the Wisconsin race, uh, Nevada, Arizona, These are I think these are all going to go with the Republicans. Um, I'm not even saying, by the way, that the Republicans deserve all this success. I, I'm not a Republican, but I, it just looks to me like they're going to be the recipients of a very angry um and and very um broke american people who see all of their pain and misery as having been caused by the people they have put into office so they're not buying that this is putin they're not buying that this is cyclical um they're going to assign the blame to the people who are in charge and that's the democrats that's how I see it. Friday, we'll have our Raul Jimenez Thanksgiving Dinner Radiothon. We'll be live from the Alamo Lounge all day. You'll be able to donate all day. You can even donate right now. Go to KTSA.com. And the Donate button is in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. President Biden came out today like a game show host uh, and announced a new uh, prize showcase with less than three weeks to go before the midterms. It's more, mu- more uh, oil from the SPR. Uh, how do you like me now? Uh, and he is really using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as if it was his, uh, you know, get-out-of-trouble card for the midterms. Certainly not what it was set up for originally, as our next guest explains every time he joins us. Jason Isaac from Texas Public Policy Foundation, a former Texas state representative on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. Jason, good afternoon. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. So this SPR is for, like, times of war. 
Uh, you know, we were envisioning, you know, Tom Clancy like, uh, scenarios where tankers are getting torpedoed in the, uh, ocean or taken over by pirates or oil fields are on fire in the Middle East. This is now just a bribe, a desperate bribe to the voters. Yeah, this is Biden's tool. It's the, the strategic petroleum reserve created in 1970. Uh, had about 600 million barrels by 1990. Uh, we're at the lowest point that it's had since before 1984 now. He's taken a million barrels a day competing with American energy producers. He's put pit the government against American energy producers. We're still about a million barrels per day below what was being produced produced pre-COVID during the prior administration. But this current administration is the one that said, I guarantee you we will end fossil fuels that said no more drilling on federal lands, no more drilling, including offshore, no ability for the industry to continue to drill. So continuing to attack American energy producers and then go hat in hand or fist bump uh, to the Saudis and to Venezuela, where they don't produce energy nearly as responsibly as we do here in the United States. We also have learned, obviously, in the ensuing months that he was really uh, pressing or begging the Saudis uh, and OPEC to help him, um, and they rebuffed him. Uh, there is a story that he asked them to not announce their production cuts until closer to the midterms, which sounds suspiciously like the grounds for investigating uh, President Trump's call to Ukraine. Um, but also, as you've told us many times, Jason Isaac, the problem is not that the world has a shortage of crude oil or a shortage of production of it, but the United States has a lack of refining capacity. Yeah, we've actually seen a decrease in refining capacity, and this is the whole of government approach in collusion with financial industries and now insurance providers that aren't making services and products available to American energy producers. Over the last six years, we've seen a greater than 90% reduction in available capital being invested in oil and gas. It's gone from $46.6 billion in 2016 to just $4.6 billion of private capital being invested in oil and gas in 2021. That's a massive reduction uh, in American energy, but it's being increased in foreign countries like PetroChina and others. And, and you look at the president's job approval. It lags about a week behind the price of gas. So he's doing anything and everything he can. It's almost like Democrat operatives are controlling the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, trying to get the price of gasoline to go down before November 8th. I read somewhere that we, before the announcement today, that we were down to about a three-week supply of the SPR. As you mentioned, it's at a low, its lowest point since the early 1980s. Um, what could that mean if the kind of rainy day for which it was envisioned happens? Well, what will happen is if you have another hurricane that hits between you know here and, and the next few weeks, uh, you're going to have severe issues regarding uh, fuel that's available, electric generation that's available. A lot of that power is restored with diesel generators that are refined. You know, the diesel is refined from the oil that could be in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help out an emergency situation like that. Uh, you could have grid issues because we don't have enough reliable electricity on the grids around this country. 
and you're not going to have the backup fuel. Uh, you're going to see increased costs for home heating. A lot of the home heating in the Northeast is still done with home heating oil. Uh, and so those costs are going to continue to rise. That's one of the reasons why wood-burning stoves are in such demand, and such backlog. You can't get them for six months. The cost of wood for burning inside your home to heat your home is skyrocketing uh, up around the world and supply are decreasing uh, significantly. So it's just going to mean higher prices, uh, and that's just going to have a greater impact on the least among us. We're talking with Jason Isaac from Texas Public Policy Foundation on KTSA. What about the, um, I keep reading about the, the energy crisis in Europe, which sounds pretty dire. Um, you know, rolling blackouts, uh, rationing. There was a story today that the BBC is preparing emergency scripts uh, in the event of, of having to announce to the nation that the power will be turned off between 4 and 7 p.m. on weekdays and things of this nature. So it, it sounds as if, uh, it's bad and getting worse. Is, is there any way those conditions uh, could come here, or are we talking about apples and oranges? No, they're, they're actually already here, and these policies are rooted in decarbonization, attaining net zero. They feel like that this will stave off the so-called climate crisis. Mind you, deaths from weather-related events are down 98% over the last 100 years. That's because we've mastered the climate with access to affordable, reliable energy, with that access, we can improve the strength of buildings, our homes, uh, but they're still on this cult-like path to decarbonize their economies, and doing so doesn't mitigate a changing climate. If every single signatory to the Paris Accord, including China and the United States, who haven't ratified this in the United States, it's not law in the United States, if all these countries met their terms, the temperature differential by 2100 is going to be less than 0.17 degrees. They're trying to stave off two degrees of warming. Even if it does warm two degrees, that's going to continue to be mild and manageable. But the, the models show that eliminating CO2 doesn't do anything to stave that off. But that's where these countries are going. Germany's not backing down. Freezing deaths are going to continue to rise in the winter across Europe. Uh, and I think it's too little too late for the U.K., even though they're new. Uh, Prime Minister has listed the ban on fracking. They may have enough energy come next winter, but this winter is going to be devastating mm. for them. Mm. And those policies are taking root here, not only in uh, states around the country, but in cities uh, around this particular state that are trying to decarbonize. And doing so doesn't improve the environment. It doesn't mitigate a climate change. It just increases the cost of everything that we do and ultimately dehumanizes the planet. Jason Isaac, Texas Public Policy Foundation. Always great to have you. Thank you for making time for us. Great to be on. Thank you. All right, 443 is our KTSA News Time, 210-599-5555. All right, so uh, we're talking about the midterms less than three weeks ago before the midterm elections. We'll be here on that night here on KTSA with live into the night uh, coverage. Um, We were talking about the drag brunch I don't want to play for you. They had a debate in the Georgia governor's race between uh, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. And they had this guy, a, a real tool, <laughs> named Chuck Williams. He's a, he's a talk show host in Georgia. This was the opening question he put to Stacey Abrams. Cut number two. 
Chuck Williams, you get the first question of Stacey Abrams. Thank you, Donna. Ms. Abrams, public opinion polls in our state show support for the right to abortion, Medicaid expansion, and banning assault weapons. You are on the side of public opinion in each of these issues, yet you are behind in almost every poll. Why? <laughs> oh, man. What a suck up. I'm telling you. I mean, you got to see the video too because he's like uh he's like a a giant slurping version of Carl Rove. He's just he's it, I mean, I guess there's I guess you could take it the other way. I guess you could say, well, he's he's asking why is she such a terrible candidate if she's right on the issues. But to to premise the question with you're right about everything. Why aren't you winning? That's how the debate started. But Kemp is up in that race. There hasn't been a poll in in weeks that shows that is even a close race for all the the bias for Stacey Abrams. Remember when they put her on Star Trek and made her the the president of Earth? I mean, no matter what they've done for her, rising star of the Democratic Party, Biden's shortlist for VP, she's she's blowing it. She's not winning. Why? Why? Why are you not winning? Why? (laughs) All right, so... um, I wrote an article about this at KTSA.com today. You know, we we have heard for the last two years that Georgia is Jim Crow on steroids. It's the worst place in the world. Major League Baseball stripped them of the All-Star game. Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, all the corporate citizenry in Atlanta excoriating Georgia for its voter ID laws. Here is the first day of early voting. Uh, they They start earlier than we do. On their first day of early voting, they had 131,000 votes. By comparison, the last midterm election year, 2018, first day of early voting was 71,000 votes. So they almost doubled it. And if that's voter suppression, that's the worst voter suppression anybody's ever seen. They're, They're not doing it right. If this is what happens when you require a voter ID, oh, black people won't be able to vote and and, and, uh, elderly people won't be able to vote. Uh, No, not happening. And Mark Robinson, the lieutenant governor of North Carolina, was talking about this the other day. I think we played one of the other clips from his interview, but this is something he said on the the, uh, Dan Bongino uh, Fox weekend show about voter suppression. Listen to this, cut number one. The soft bigotry of uh, low expectation uh, is not soft. It's as hard as a, as a punch. It's as devastating and, and has been as detrimental in the black community as a stick of dynamite uh, chucked from the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, this this stuff is ridiculous. To suggest that the people who survived the Middle Passage, uh, survived uh, the, the, the horrors of slavery, and then survived Jim Crow, now have reached a point where they can't go down to the DMV to get a free ID to secure their votes. Not only insulting, it's ridiculous. And uh, we've got to push back against that narrative. It's just, it's a false narrative meant to continue to this a propagation that black folks are victims and that they need the Democratic Party to supply them with what uh, for everything that they need. That's a falsehood. We know it's not true, and we've got to push back against that narrative. Yeah, 131,000 first day early votes, 70,000 last time. 
John Fetterman, the Pennsylvania Democratic Senate candidate, uh, released what they're calling his medical record after weeks on the campaign trail where he has been obviously struggling and, and people have been asking where are the records. But what they released was a letter in PDF form, one page, from his primary care physician, a Dr. Clifford Chen. And so it's basically a doctor's note, like you would have to bring to work to, you know, justify a sick day. <laughs> and it's just a, a, a kind of a breezy, everything's fine, he's doing great. Um, that would not, I mean, I, I would think that's not what medical records mean. I've never run for office, but I presume releasing your medical records would be a lot more detail or documentation than that. But that's what we got. I don't know if you've noticed, his his wife, uh, Giselle Fetterman, is now uh, kind of a campaign surrogate. She's kind of out there doing the Edith Wilson thing uh, for her husband. And I don't know if this is some sort of um, strategy or what, but now she has started identifying as bi. So she goes to these events, and she's wearing Biceratops T-shirt and these other uh, punny uh, slogans about being uh, bisexual, uh, and um, <laughs> and she's also demanding that the media um, clean up its its reporting on his health care, uh, calling the media reporting, particularly that NBC News piece on Fetterman, ableist. All of this reminds me of I don't know if you recall when Trump was president, um, he he pulled this. You know, he was clearly uh, one of our older presidents, at the time the oldest. He was, um, you know, to look at Donald Trump is not to see a guy that's in good health. Okay, well, I think we can say that. But he did this. He he put out the, everything's fine, my doctor says I'm great, my numbers are incredible. Um, and they had a meltdown. They had a freakout. Now, I realize there's a difference between being president and being in the U.S. Senate or running for it, but I guess if you are insisting that there be transparency from candidates, where are the people who were upset at Trump's lack of transparency? And I have no dispute with you on that. It was. It was a lack of transparency. Um, I mean, I don't know if there anything, is anything wrong with Trump or not, but but they were not forthcoming about that like they should have been. But where are all those people that were having cows about that over this? It, it, it's it's the kind of thing that just turns people off from politics altogether when they realize, oh, you, you don't really believe what you're saying. You only say it about one side, but not the other. And I've said before, by the way, I, I don't even think Fetterman's stroke or his health is the reason he shouldn't be in the Senate. The reason he shouldn't be in the Senate is he has bananas ideas about socialism and and government, not not I'm I'm not worried about whether he can give a speech in the Senate. Uh, I'm worried about how he's going to vote in the Senate. And um, I think it was a mistake to even zero in on his health, frankly. But since they've chosen to do it, it's pretty funny that he's basically pulled the Trump strategy. You got to love it, right? I mean, it's sort of like symmetry. <laughs> Republicans got one. Now the Democrats got one. But that's what's going on. She's um, she's going around saying uh, you shouldn't be reporting on his struggles. That's ableist. 
210-599-5555. Yeah, we were talking about John Fetterman, the Democratic Pennsylvania U.S. Senate candidate. He did an interview um, with Dave Weigel, and uh, Weigel asked him about uh, the fact that he has wanted to or has called for the early release of uh, convicted murderers. So he asked Fetterman... Uh, when someone convicted of first degree, when would you determine or how would you determine when someone convicted of first degree murder deserved clemency? And Fetterman's response was the Morgan Freeman test. And my antenna went up because I, to the best of my knowledge, Morgan Freeman has never been convicted of first degree murder. I checked. He has not. But you will remember that Morgan Freeman famously played a guy named Red. In the movie *The Green Mile*, I'm uh, the uh, *Shawshank Redemption*, right, where he was the, uh, you know, the guy on in prison and uh, languishing away in prison. He very sympathetic character in that movie. So the Morgan Freeman test, according to John Fetterman, is a touchstone because everyone's seen the movie. So he says, "I ask people, would you want Morgan Freeman?" to die in prison or not? Would you want him to spend the rest of his life in prison and die? He says, I've never met anybody who said, yeah, he should die in prison. I would vote for him to die in prison. So, as Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman has a vote in these things, and he has voted in favor of the release of actual murderers like a guy that beat a high school student to death with a baseball bat and then shot him because he was the son of a cop. But Fetterman says the way to understand this issue is to think of a fictional character in a movie and say, would you want Morgan Freeman to die in prison? Well, no, I would not. I don't even want Morgan Freeman to die out of prison. By the way, in the book on which the movie is based... By Stephen King. Morgan Freeman's character um, sabotages his wife's car to collect insurance money, killing his wife, his baby, and I think another person was in the car. So I, I don't know if he's actually seen the whole movie, but and and we all love Morgan Freeman, but that's not even a very sympathetic uh, character. But imagine your answer to the question of early release for convicted murderers is to cite a movie. And, you know, we can laugh about it. For the record, I would say, yes, uh, Red should have died in prison. But we can laugh about this, and, and we will, but... This kind of also, I think, goes to show that we've kind of infantilized the political discussion in this country and political um, debate in this country. Because that should not even be, I mean, that, that, that's an answer that should be returned as incomplete. You didn't answer the question. That's not an answer. That's a movie. That's fictional. What's your answer? Explain it in real-world, real-life terms. I want to play you an example of what I'm worried about. This is the kind of thing that, again, you can laugh at it, 
because it's so over the top. But this is an ad, uh, a television ad, released by Congressman Eric Swalwell of California. Now, I don't know that this is his ad or that he's the only one that has it. It's been associated with him. I think he released it on Twitter, in fact. But it's an ad for Democrats called Lock Her Up. And it's about the one issue that they think is going to save them and maybe even turn things around in the midterms, and that's that's abortion. I, I want to play the ad for you. And, Don, we may need to pause it a little bit so I can annotate it because i got to explain some of the visuals. Uh, but this is the Lock Her Up ad from the Democrats. Take a listen. Dad is feeding the baby dinner, high chair, nice family around the table, husband, wife, and kids. Knock on the door. Mary Anderson? Yes. It's the police. I have a warrant for your arrest. Arrest for what? Penal code 243 violation. Unlawful termination of a pregnancy. You gotta be kidding me. That That is my personal business. That's for the courts to decide, ma'am. Your medical records have been subpoenaed, and Dr. Landry's already in mm. custody. Mm. Feel bad for Dr. Landers. No, my God, you, you, you can't just... You will have to submit to a physical examination. What? By who? No, no, no one's touching her. Oh, uh, the, the father, the husband steps forward, and they actually pull their guns on him. Okay, so then she shushes him back. No, no, don't. The kids are wailing and screaming. Keep, keep going. Just enforcing the law here. Elections have consequences. Vote Democrat on November 8th. Stop Republicans from criminalizing abortion everywhere. Mm. Protect mm. women's rights and freedom. Please don't do this. Dr. Landers is already in jail. Yeah. Um, so none of that is in any of the laws that have been passed so far. There aren't any laws where women are arrested at home or arrested, period, or criminally charged. Uh, there are laws that criminally charge doctors, but not women who receive abortions. Um, and when Eric Swalwell was asked that, even he admitted, well, that's not what's going on now, but I think, it, I think that's what Republicans want to do. So he's hoping that this will, I guess, scare, terrify uh, Democratic voters. What do you think of this ad? I have to tell you, um, my first inclination is to laugh at how over-the-top ridiculous it is. But I have to remind myself, if people don't know that this is not a component of any of the state laws passed since Dobbs, nor is it proposed as one, I I guess this could be effective. I mean, this is where we've infantilized or dumbed down political discourse. You don't have to represent real-world events anymore. You can just say, well, it could happen. It might happen. This, This is what they would do. And the wider strategy for the Democrats in the final weeks of this election is clearly to distract you from inflation, distract you from the economy, 
and suggests that we're heading towards some kind of Handmaid's Tale dystopia. What do you think of that ad? Does it does it work on people, or is it like too over the top? And there, it, it, people will think, wait a minute, that can't be right. How do you see it? Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. So yeah, this is an ad that the Democrats have released. Eric Swalwell is using it, but he may not be the only one. It's called Lock Her Up. It's about a woman who's at home with her family when the police show up to arrest her for abortion. Mary Anderson? Yes? I have a warrant for your arrest. Arrest for what? Penal Code 243 violation. Unlawful termination of a pregnancy. you got to be kidding me. That, that is my personal business. That's for the courts to decide, ma'am. Your medical records have been subpoenaed, and Dr. Landry's already in custody. All right, so will this add, um, none of that is in the laws that states have proposed or already passed. Is this law, is this uh, ad um, effective, or is it so ridiculous that it will not work? Uh, what is your take on that? Dan is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Dan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Very good show as always, Jack. Thank you. Thank um, you, Dan. Two, two things. Number one, it is exactly what the Dem-controlled FBI is doing to people who merely protested outside of an abortion clinic. Um, that's, that's a good really point. Happened. You're aware of yeah, that. Yeah, we should make that ad. <laughs> that would be a good ad to make in yeah, response. Yeah. You know, exactly. Say, so we're already doing this, so we know the Republicans are going to do it as well. I mean, that's ridiculous. But with Swalwell involved, there's not a lot of gray matter that went into the thought process. But secondly... You could replace unlawful termination of a pregnancy with unlawful ownership of a firearm, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what Beto and some of mm-hmm. the others would be after. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's ridiculous, and it is, uh, you remember the term yellow journalism. I mean, that's all it is. It's, yeah. Will it's people, do you think people will see through it, or do you think it'll it'll be effective for them, Dan? I'm in my mid-60s, and I firmly believe by this point, so many people have made up their mind in voting along whichever party line they're going to vote. I don't think it will have a great deal of impact one way or the other. Okay. Minds are already mostly made up. Dan, thank you. Appreciate the call. Appreciate the kind words. Um, I mean, you got to expect that there will be all kinds of variations on this theme because, as, as I said earlier, that this is what they are left with. This is the messaging um thread for the democrats for the next three weeks they they just can't run on the economy they can't run on 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 biden or his record they don't want to even mention him they don't even want him appearing with him on the campaign trail so uh abortion is what they have it's the basket they put all their eggs into but if i i think what's happened here is you may remember we had a conversation on this show a few weeks ago where a lady called and said that she was really worried. She thought that there really were a lot of voters who would uh, vote in this election, in this midterm, based on the Republicans going too far or being perceived as going too far. Or, or uh, this ad suggests they haven't done it yet, but they will go too far in, in uh, regulating abortion. I have to tell you, I've been watching the Republicans all my life. I I don't think um, I don't think they have the guts to go uh, too far on anything. But 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 anyhow. So she was worried. She said, "Jack, I think you're underestimating. This is um, this could happen. This could be a a shocker 
on election day when a lot of women, a lot of uh, voters turn out and, and reject Republicans, even though other things would seem to favor them having a red wave election, reject them because, they, uh, because of the Dobbs decision. I think she might have been sort of right at one point, maybe in the late summer. I think there might have been a point where the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade had had given energy to the Democratic base. You know, it even seemed to jazz up Joe Biden a little bit, right? And um, they were throwing some pretty sharp elbows. And um, it, it, you could see where maybe they were closing the gap in the generic ballot and regaining momentum. They certainly felt that they were. Their hopes got up. But that's all dissipated. Every survey on issues, I'm not talking about candidate polls, every survey on issues says that consistently, men, women, different demographics, different age groups, it's the economy. It's inflation. It's gasoline prices. Very few very low percentages for abortion, very low percentages for January 6th, which is their other kind of go-to uh, topic. And um, I think if it ever had the chance to help them, it came at the wrong time and it didn't last. Do you think this ad will be effective? 210-599-5555. And Terry's on the radio. Terry, good afternoon. Uh, hi. Hi, uh, can you hear me? I can. Okay, I just wanted to say that I think the Democrats are pulling at whatever straws they can because they know the economy is terrible and everything else is terrible, and their name looks like mud. So they're going to pull at whatever they can. If they pull this ad today, in a few days they're going to pull another ad and another ad because they're desperate. They know they're going to lose a bunch of elections. I agree that they're desperate. Do you think an ad like this will help them? It might a little bit, but not, not enough to what they want, to what they need. I don't think. See, so. I'm trying to understand. What I don't understand, Terry, is if you're a, if you're a woman who actually uh, supports abortion, access to abortion, and and you 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 want to know, maybe you haven't had one, but you want to know that you could, and you don't want the Republicans interfering, then I would presume you've done some you know, reading and some homework on what is actually in these laws. And a guy like Eric Swalwell would not be able to pull the wool over your eyes and lie to you about what's in them. Now, maybe you would share his belief that, well, they're not doing it yet, but they will. I mean, you could, you could, you could believe that. You could believe that Republicans will get carried away with themselves and start arresting women. But there's no, there's nothing like that in the language of these laws. And somebody, presumably somebody who was very keyed in on abortion would know what was in these laws. You'd be, you'd be, you know, checking out websites and you'd be following people on Twitter. And if this is your issue, then you know more about it than I do. And you would know that this is not what's being done or proposed. It, it is, however, I, I don't think you should ever underestimate um, emotions and fear is an emotion. And this is really a fear ad. This is the what if, you know, ad. And there's a long tradition of this 
in American politics. I mean, you can go back before my time and probably before your time. LBJ ran an ad with a, mu- a nuclear mushroom cloud against Goldwater. You know, I mean, you can, you can, you can get along. You can go a long way on emotion and fear. But will this be effective? Does does this pull their fat out of the fire? So I guess the theory here is that when a political party wins big and picks up a large majority, they get drunk, they get reckless, they they think they can, you know, like the Tears for Fears song, you know, everybody wants to rule the world. So the premise of this abortion ad is, well, they're not saying it now, but... Believe you me, America, if you give these Republicans control of Congress and control of state houses and state legislatures, uh, they're going to pass laws that would uh, get women, uh, you know, dragged out of their home at gunpoint and charged with abortion crimes, which is not in any of the texts or proposed texts uh, post-Dobbs. If that is true, if that's what they're saying and that's what they want you to believe, Couldn't I argue that Democrats got drunk with power in the years after Roe v. Wade, which coincidentally were really good years for Democrats. They had a lot of success. They had a lot of years in which they controlled both houses of Congress uh, and often the presidency. Couldn't we argue that they um, have been drunk with power when it comes to abortion? I hear politicians today, governors, senators, members of Congress, candidates for office who are Democrats, who are talking very casually about abortion through the ninth month of pregnancy, uh, post-natal abortion, uh, and so forth. So I guess they are warning us that the Republicans will be as drunk with power as they were after big victories. How does that ad strike you? 210-599-5555 shows a family around the dinner table. Dad's feeding the kids. Mom's there. Everybody's happy. And then the police, there's a knock on the door. Police show up. It all turns into a nightmare. Guns are pulled. 210-599-5555, your thoughts about that. Uh, Stacey Abrams was on Morning Joe on MSNBC, and she was connecting abortion and inflation. The the question from Mike Barnacle was, aren't you guys going to get pasted on inflation? That's what people care about. Listen to her answer, cut number seven. You're running for governor of Georgia. Uh, I would assume, maybe incorrectly, But while abortion is an issue, it nowhere reaches the level of interest of voters in terms of the cost of gas, food, bread, milk, things like that. What can a governor, what could you do as governor to alleviate the concerns of Georgia voters about those livability, daily, hourly issues that they're confronted with? But let's be clear. Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. Mm. And so these are, it's important for us to have both and conversations. 
We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out. But we also have to talk about what a governor uh, can do. A governor can address housing prices. Okay, so am I understanding her that um, we need access to abortion in order to deal with inflation? Like, inflation is bad. It's even worse if you have kids. Ergo, <laughs> therefore. See, and, and that's what I mean about all the eggs are in that basket. Everything comes back to that. No matter what you try to get them to talk about, they come back to that. I, I don't know if that's a hunch. I don't know if they have internal polling. I don't know if they got sort of, if they sort of painted themselves into a corner on that, but that's it. That's what they've got at this point. 210-599-5555. Um, here's a guy running for, um, the Senate in Indiana as a Democrat, his name is Tom McDermott, and he is just desperately trying to make up for the fact that he is a man. Cut number five. Listen to this. I'm going to, who's your women? Trust me. Uh, I'm on an all-woman ticket right now, right, right now, and November 8th, 2022 is about who's your women. Women who've lost their reproductive rights. And even though I'm a man, who's your women? Trust me to do the right thing when I win on November 8th. Mm. Even though I'm a man, <laughs> I just never thought, I never thought I'd hear people talk this way. It, sound, it sounds, just sounds like insanity. I'm on an all-woman ticket. I'm a man, but we're all women here. Nothing here but us women folk. Um, 210-599-5555. Uh, another MSNBC show, they had... Um, Speaker Pelosi on, as she was talking with Andrea Mitchell. And Andrea Mitchell was very delicately, I mean, it's almost painful to listen to because she's, she's being so achingly, painfully respectful and, and just sort of tiptoeing into the subject like she's afraid Nancy will hit her for asking about the polling. Listen to this, cut number four. Listen to how she sets it up. So let's talk about rising inflation concerns along with crime, giving momentum, new momentum to Republicans after the Democrats were closing the gap, the historic gap. Yes. So after the Supreme Court ruling, there was huge outrage. That has seemed to subside, at least among overriding concerns. Despite all the legislative accomplishments, and I, I want to cite them, I want to, you know, Say it's been an extraordinary session. You and the president have done so much. Oh God, what kind of setup for a question is this? Listen to this. Hold on, hold on. So, I mean, she's. It's like I, I need to ask you this, but first, you're doing a great job, and I'm sorry to even bring it up. And it's, you know, I mean, it's like, please don't hit me, you know. And basically, I love the way the media report on inflation. Inflation isn't a problem for you and me. Inflation is something Republicans are are taking advantage of. And they're pouncing on, and it's giving them it's giving them uh, momentum. It, it, like it's not a real thing; it's just a factor that favors the Republicans. That, and I guess in Andrea Mitchell's world, it is not a real thing. It is just a political um, consideration. All right, so listen to Nancy Pelosi just completely go into denial about what's going on. Listen. So why is this message? Why do you think the president has gotten this message through the voters? Well, first of all, uh, let me say uh, that I think that much of what you've said I don't agree with. That is okay. to say, the New York Times poll, I think, is an outlier poll. 
you just cite one poll, but all the others. It's polls also the real clear politics. It's the New York Times yeah. showing similar issues. No, but they, but that was one that brought down the average, and it was an outlier. Yeah. It wasn't even that, that big a sample. New York so Times. So I, I dismiss that. Uh, I have been uh, since Congress adjourned. I've been in an average of five states a week, and I can tell you uh, that women's concerns about their freedom are very, very much still very significant in terms of how they will vote. In fact, 80% of people who care about a woman's right to choose say they will vote, they will determine who they vote for. So again, uh, Washington has always been, oh, the Republicans are going to win, there's no question, for a year and a half. Now that that has diminished in terms of that certainty, and there is a, a real race on, the Republicans are pouring endless money, dark undisclosed special interest money into the campaigns, mm. but we're holding our own. It's a matter of who turns out to vote. Uh, there are issues that we, of course, we want to uh, uh, fight inflation. It's a global issue. But mm. some it's a global the, issue. It's, it's a global issue. Just blew in with the wind like that Saharan dust. Had, we, nothing to do with it. We're just, we just got some of it in the wind from Europe, those damn Europeans. Caught some of their inflation. All right, so what do you think? How are you feeling about the midterms? That's our JR poll question today. I agree with the caller earlier who said that, uh, you know, at this point, most people have already made up their mind how they're going to vote. So the question is not, can Biden pull out another, you know, X million gallons of oil from the SPR, or can the Democrats produce another, um, you know, overly dramatic, uh, abortion uh, television ad. The, the question is, are we measuring the, the electorate as it is? In other words, have we actually asked enough people, the right people, are the samples big enough, are they representative of who's going to vote um, and who is voting? Because obviously in 30 or 40 states, we've already started early voting. Um, and I, I don't think we have. I don't think we have. I don't think we have gotten to the, to the right ratios or percentages of people and i would tend to think when you see an ad that shows it as a close race between x and y the democratic candidate the republican candidate if the republican is within five points the republican is probably going to win that that race so i think uh for example i think oz is pulled to within three of of fetterman and pennsylvania um you look around the country, there's a lot of these. Uh, Blake Masters in Arizona, one point behind Mark Kelly. Um, it, it, when I see those, I think those are going to be Republican pickups. People by now, it's the middle of October, um, I think they have decided how they feel about the way things are going. It's not likely that you would change your attitude in the next few weeks. You know, I don't think things are so bad. I think things are, things are better. You also, I think you've more or less figured out who you blame or who you're afraid of or if that's how you're voting. I mean, I, I don't, I don't vote on fear, but I, I guess there are people who do. So if, if you're afraid of the Republicans and you're going to hold your nose and, and vote for the Democrats, or if you're, uh, afraid of the Democrats, maybe you're going to hold your nose and vote for the Republicans. But, um, and, and already you have people writing the epitaphs and saying, well, it's because Biden was a poor communicator. It was because they didn't pass voting rights legislation because he didn't pack the Supreme Court. Um, 
Republicans are, are, as you know, have been complaining for months. We have bad candidates. McConnell hinted at that. I mean, look at Herschel Walker. He's a terrible candidate. And he's still hanging around in that race with Raphael Warnock. I don't think he's going to win that one. But the fact that he's even still in it kind of tells you what you need to know about where this thing is going. There's uh, the possibility of the first Republican governor of Oregon in like 38 years. Uh, this no-name, nobody Republican in Michigan is right behind Gretchen Whitmer. I mentioned Lee Zeldin in New York, four points behind Kathy Hochul, the uh, governor that took over from Cuomo. Um, so that's how I look at it. I, I would, I would, I would tend to say add five or six points or whatever, and you'll probably have a pretty good idea of what to expect. And then if it doesn't happen. If it doesn't happen, or it isn't as big, or it isn't as great, um, then we'll deal with that. But that's what I think right now. And um, I, I mentioned this earlier. I One of my most vivid memories of doing this radio show was the morning after. Don, I don't know if we were working together at that time or not. The morning after the 2012 election, that was President Obama versus Mitt Romney. And in the final weeks, Romney had caught up to and in, in, in a number of polls had passed Barack Obama. And remember, Obama had a, a, a tough first term and he had just had um, Benghazi. And so a lot of people thought that Mitt Romney was going to win. And Mitt Romney was the, was the pre-Senate Mitt Romney. He wasn't the guy that's infuriated a lot of Republicans <laughs> since he became a senator from Utah. This is when he was the former governor of Massachusetts. And when he didn't win, and when Obama won comfortably on election night in 2012, the next morning, there were people calling the show crying. I'd never had anything like that. Not that it was my responsibility, but I felt like it was. And people were crying and saying, "What, what do we do now? What do we do now? And ever since then, I've, I've been careful about predicting things, you know, forecasting. Uh, but I, 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 at this point, because I think there's a lot of psyops going on with trying to depress and discourage, demoralize conservatives in this country to make you feel like you're the problem and uh, to make you feel like uh, you're, you're, you're going to be disappointed and uh, what have you, I... I, I I'm not holding back. You should know. I think they're going to blow it out. And then they're going to have a, a job to do. Because think about this. You, you may be hoping that happens. You may be very happy if and when that happens. But then they have to deliver. They have to show that that meant something, that that means something. Yes, some of it will be fury against the Democrats, fury against the COVID shutdowns, which we're going to talk about in the next hour. But then Republicans have to show that they have some clue. And that's a big if, right? Just saying. All right, what day would be complete without a little football talk? So um, mm-hmm. Dak Prescott comes back. They play, what, Detroit? Yeah. 
It's a nice way to come back. Yeah, it is. And then they got Chicago after Detroit, so kind of a, yeah. a soft entry into the bye week. And See, that's how my Patriots got their mojo back. They they did that one-two punch, Detroit and Chicago. That's the way to do it. Oh, that's inspirational. I'll keep that in yeah. mind. Yeah. That's, <laughs> right? those, are, those are two teams you can get yourself right back on track with. Um, ben Roethlisberger has come out and said that um, he was on a podcast and uh, he says when he looked at Tom Brady losing to his Steelers last week, Brady, that's not the Tom Brady he knew. Mm-hmm. That he seems checked out mentally. Clearly he's the greatest. The Super Bowl ring show it, said Roethlisberger. It didn't look like he wanted to be out there. Um, and even Brady is saying stuff about uh, he's distracted and um, what have you. What do you think's going on there? Well, I mean, he's he's got the divorce thing going, yeah. and I mean, he's what forty five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point, and admittedly, I've been saying this about Brady for about five or six years. Father Time is undefeated at right. this, right. and great, he's been able to play in a in in what, in my opinion, is a, is a far weaker era of defense in the NFL, but. At some point, 45 yeah. is 45, and then, yeah, I'm sure his hands are full. And I'm sure what you Ben know, Roethlisberger I, I, sees is correct. We all know what's going on, or we think we do. We at least have some idea of what's going on personally. And 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 I, I don't like to talk about that or delve into that, because that's, that's something only the people involved, only the, only the people involved in a marriage really know yeah. uh, what's going on. But I do have to say, Brady's a little vulnerable on this, because his whole forte is that that disciplined approach right like his Mm -hmm. thing has always been nobody works harder nobody preps more nobody's more devoted to uh conditioning so it's it's hard to sort of give him that consideration that maybe other players have gotten or or he should get because that his whole right his whole mo is nothing keeps me from being 100 percent focused and ready well let's compare probably the two top quarterbacks of the 2000s. That would be Brady and Peyton Manning. When Peyton Manning knew he couldn't do it anymore, when he was sure, past the, the neck injury, mm-hmm. he hung up the cleats. He mm-hmm. said, you know, I just, I'm not who I was. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when that time is for Brady, but mm-hmm. it, it, it's we're probably there. It, it is approaching, and I agree with you. And I also think uh, he has, God only knows what the figure is, he has got some unbelievable amount of money sitting in a broadcast booth waiting oh, yeah. for him. Yeah. So, you know, he's got to he's got to that's got to be taken into consideration. I think too. at some point you've got to ask yourself how well do you want to walk after you play pro football? Yeah. Yeah. And like you said broadcast booth, look at Tony Romo, Troy Aikman, yeah. Phil Simms, Dan Marino for a little while. Yeah. There's life after football on the field yeah. and he'll be right in the middle of it. Yeah. Well, and the money will be exponentially more than those guys. Uh, <laughs> yes, got. it will. It's yes. going to be it, whatever whatever it'll be. It'll be a record that we've never seen or heard of before. We know that. Probably. Anyway, all right. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Been asking you today. How are you feeling about the midterms? You can tell me at two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. You can tell me uh, Jack at ktsa dot com and. Um, Mary wrote to me and said, I'm concerned if and when the Republicans take the midterms, they must perform or they may ruin the chances 
uh, for a conservative president next time. Democrats are smart at sneaky tactics. The current state of politics makes me cry at times, and I have to step away. My friends always remind me that God is in control. Sincerely, Mary. Yeah, that's your friends are giving you good advice, Mary. Um, yeah, if you're if you're look if you're if you're like lying awake at night, if you're crying, if you're having temper tantrums, if it's coming out in the way you drive, yeah, step away, step back. Because the, we we don't need to we don't need to marinate in this we don't need to soak it's not worth your health or your blood pressure, um, and I, I I know it may sound weird me saying that but I I really mean it I mean if it meant turning off talk radio do it, um, because I do think that if you look at the arc of history, there is more going on than just what we do. There are other forces at work. And if you if you read any history or know any history, you also know that people in any particular moment, I mean, pick any year, any point in American history, the people in that moment did not know and were usually wrong about what was going to happen next. So they didn't know where they were in the history that now we can look back on and say, well, uh, this war took place from this year to that year, or this depression took place from this year to that year. In, in those events, in those periods, these people didn't know. 210-599-5555. Um, but yeah, I think at this point, for me, it comes down to most voters have made up their minds, um, and the measurement of those voters is flawed by the fact that People who are conservative, people who are faith-based, people who supported or maybe still support Trump are very loath to be surveyed or sampled. They just won't do it, and you're not getting them. You're not picking them up. And and because you're not picking them up, I don't even think you really know how many of them there are because if you can't get people to take your survey, then you can still weight your survey, you know, accordingly to reflect, you know, or extrapolate for them, but I don't think they can even do that. 210-599-5555. Bill Gates says on CNBC that the energy crisis in Europe is good. Um, we were talking about this with Jason Isaac from Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, he says the energy crisis in Europe is going to be a good thing in the long run because it will move people to renewables faster. I'll give him credit for honesty. He didn't sugarcoat it. There's a lot of people talking about your life, your existence, like it is just a transitory thing. Like you're not living, you're not a real person with dignity and importance. You are just in the way of progress. We're not interested in you. We're interested in where we're going to be in 30, 40, 50 years. And we need to just get past you. And there's a lot of talk this way. Like, I'm hearing the term collateral damage used a lot. Now, the first time I ever heard the term collateral damage was in connection with warfare. And it meant that if you dropped bombs on your enemy, but you hit the town or the hamlet or, you know, killed a farmer's chickens instead, that was collateral damage. Because those were not militarily valuable targets or intentional targets. And... um So collateral damage is anything you do 
that's extraneous to what you were trying to do. And I hear people describe um, the collateral damage done by the pandemic. So jobs that were lost, businesses that were ruined and closed, collateral damage. Loss of education and children's mental health, collateral damage. Loneliness, depression, drug overdoses, suicides, collateral damage. But here's the problem. Collateral damage is supposed to be inadvertent. We didn't know we were doing it. Can you really say that about the policies under COVID? Did they really not know they were doing what they did? And this is important because you're voting for, in some cases, in this election, people that made those policy decisions and now want to keep their jobs. You lost yours, or a lot of people did, but they believe they should keep theirs. The collateral damage that they refer to so casually should not apply to them. So this election and the next one and the one after that, well, they will all involve people who were making decisions between 2020 and 2022 about how to respond to COVID. Some of them are Democrats, some of them are Republicans, some of them are in office, some of them are running for office, some of them are beyond our vote, like Dr. Fauci. We're talking about collateral uh, damage. Bill Maher got on this subject on his uh, show on Friday night, and um, it's funny to me because I hear Bill Maher say things that I've said, that we've said on this show. I'm I'm not saying he got it from this show, but... To know how he, you know, to to know him and his politics and where he's coming from, and to hear him say what I'm saying, given my politics and where I'm coming from, tells me that there is a convergence around some of these ideas. That, yeah, we may be polarized and divided on many things, and there's there's disunity in the land, but people thinking logically and applying consistency to what they are seeing are coming to the same conclusions. So here is his take on that concept of pandemic collateral damage. Take a listen, cut number three. Now we're getting some information after a while, we have time, for find out just how bad the collateral damage has been. Uh, here's just a few cases. The pandemic erased two decades of progress in math and reading. See, right away, I got to say, this pisses me off. I see these headlines all the time. The pandemic didn't do that. The way we handled the pandemic did that. The pandemic certainly was a thing. But let's not just say the pandemic, because it was not written in stone that we had to handle it the way we did. Uh, Act scores are the lowest in 30 years. Um, Anxiety and depression way up. The body mass index uh, increase doubled for kids 2 to 19, drug overdose, overdose deaths, murders way up, inflation at a 40-year high, domestic violence increased. Um, oh, and my favorite, car crashes. They couldn't figure this out. They're like way, way, way up. And finally, the ex- I love this. This is the, the expert said. You know what it is? People just went <laughs> mental. <laughs> they just went nuts. They're like, I'm home. The 
fucking kids are here all the time. My stupid husband is here all the time. I'm just going to take it out on the highway. And they did. Hmm. I think he's right. Um, and, and the point there, it wasn't the pandemic. It wasn't the science or your belief in science or your insufficient loyalty to science. It was the policies, it was the choices, it was the decisions. And, and, and while it is fair to say that a person operating in good faith can still make mistakes, did the people in charge during the pandemic operate in good faith? Do you think they did? When they were presented with evidence in, in you know, sort of real time, like as this was happening, as we started to see the job loss, the businesses failing, the damage to our children, when we had the Great Barrington Declaration, did they have the humility and it, or, 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 or even the um, forbearance to say, well, oh, hold on a minute here, maybe we better, maybe we better pause, maybe we better rethink, re- reconsider what we're ordering and demanding and mandate? No, no. In fact... Even when people with tremendous expertise in responding to public health questioned the policies. In other words, these were not people that said the pandemic is a fake or it isn't a real virus. These are people who said, not sure what you're doing is the right thing to do, the right way to respond. What was, what happened? They were called enemies. They were called deniers, which is a a direct reference and meant to connect in your mind to Holocaust deniers, why they're anti-Semitic Nazis. These were people that respected medical institutions, uh, you know, uh, researchers, colleges. But because they weren't the favorites, because they weren't, and, and I think it's to their credit, frankly, that they weren't working in public health. Many of them were overqualified for that. They were not listened to or at least engaged. They were told to shut up. And you may remember a while back we played the uh, the testimony with Rand Paul and, and Dr. Uh, Fauci where Senator Paul is confronting Fauci with emails he was sending back and forth to Francis Collins at NIH where they're, they are conspiring and giggling like a couple of schoolgirls about how they're going to... Uh, wreck and and uh put down and and uh silence the great barrington doctors and the and the the people that are dissenting we're going to ruin their reputations these two say to each other so i don't think you can call it collateral damage because they were not unaware of the damage they were doing nor were they completely without any other course of action. In other words, this wasn't the only thing you could do. It was the only thing they did. And when I hear collateral damage, I think that's very dismissive and insulting to you and me. And I don't think I'm wrong to think that because they were pretty dismissive and insulting to us all the way along. And by the way, you need to keep in mind as you factor this into your voting, and I'm not telling you how to vote, but vote for whoever you're going to vote for. But just if this is going to be a factor, remember there were Democrats and Republicans 
who did this. We had a Republican president. And we had a Republican president who, I'm sorry to say, and I voted for him twice, and, and who, who understood, I think, better than any president we could have had in that moment, what was going to happen to business. And he was going along with the Fauci's and the Burks and the Redfields. And I, I can't let that go. I can't, I can't just give a pass on that. Yes, he sounds irate and angry about it now, but he was there. They all were there. I think in the years to come, it's going to be like the old JFK saying, you know, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan. I don't think he originated that statement, but he once quoted it. But I think as the years go by, you're going to find there'll be more and more people who will act like we had nothing to do. That was outrageous. We didn't have anything to do with that. We wouldn't have done that. We didn't. And, and of course, somebody did. Because, again, the pandemic didn't do all of this collateral damage, the policy response did. I'm in a quicksand and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't know which way to turn. I know I don't have much of a choice. I'll go out of my mind. Or into the night. All right, we're going to get the results on the poll question coming up this half hour. 210-599-5555. And the question we've been talking about today, are you feeling good about the midterms? Which I guess is open, you know, that's a wide open question because I guess feeling good about the midterms would depend on what you hope happens in the midterms. And I suppose you could be feeling good about the Democrats winning them, or you could be feeling good about the Republicans winning them. Um, Benjamin Crump, does that name ring a bell? Benjamin Crump is a very prominent attorney who deals in a lot of civil rights cases. He was involved with uh, George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, and others uh, cases, I should say, representing uh, the families in those cases and many like those. He is the attorney that the family of the San Antonio teenager shot by a now former SAPD officer has hired. KTSA reporting today, KTSA.com, that the family of 17-year-old Eric Cantu, who was sitting in his car at a McDonald's at Blanco West Avenue, when uh, a former police officer walked up to the car, pulled open the door, ordered him out, and uh, mistakenly thought it was a stolen car. Uh, They had this encounter. The the kid uh, drove off, and the uh, former officer pumped several shots into the car. The 17-year-old is now on life support. And the family has hired Benjamin Crump. So we'll see where that goes. I mean, it's, you could, you could draw a lot of conclusions based on where, where Benjamin Crump often goes with these cases and the, the lens or the framing that he usually gives cases, but we'll see. Mentioned this earlier. Um, the Guardian of London is reporting that the BBC has prepared secret scripts that could be read on the air if energy source uh, shortages lead to blackouts. Or a total lo- lack of, uh, you know, loss of natural gas this winter. The scripts have been written in conjunction with government ministries in the event of a major loss of power, which could also bring down mobile phone networks, internet access, banking systems, traffic lights, 
et cetera, et cetera. All of England, Wales, and Scotland are on one grid. Northern Ireland is on a different grid. The public would get various uh, pieces of advice based on these pre-written BBC scripts. I think, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, that the BBC is part of the, the government. It is not, like the American broadcasting company, ABC, is not, is not technically part of the government. Sounds like it is, right? But it's not. But BBC actually is. I mean, it's chartered by the British government. Pretty sure I'm right about that. But if you think about it, how different is that from news organizations that lend themselves to the government? So, I mean, in a, in a, if the worst happens, if you have a situation like they're fearing they're going to have this winter, blackouts that last for days, people completely disconnected from the world, um, it's interesting that the government knows how it's going to communicate with people, but I'm interested in how, how could I get alternative sources of information? How could I get and hear from people who would perhaps cast doubt or be skeptical of or ask questions about the government's response? Notice that they have prepared and they are ready to get the official line out. Of course, they wouldn't say it that way. They'd say, well, we just want to help people and make sure they have, you know, important information. Okay. I, I never worry about the, I never worry about the government's ability to reach me. <laughs> Do you worry about that? I never worry about that. I know, I know they know how to reach me. I worry about being able to seek out and, and garner information independently. Like, okay, I know what your line's going to be, but I want to hear the other side or other sides. I read an interesting thing recently, by the way. Talk about the way things have changed with journalism and media. I was reading a book uh, by one of my favorite World War II historians, Bill Brewer. Uh, He wrote a book called Drop Zone Sicily, and it's about the Allied landings on Sicily in, I think it was 1943. And the significance of that was that that was the first time in World War II that the Allies got back onto European soil. So up until that point, all the fighting in the European theater of operations had been in places like North Africa, the, uh, you know, the Battle of London, the, the battle over in the Atlantic between the U-boats and the convoys. But the, when, when Allied soldiers, when American and British soldiers landed in Sicily, to begin the process of, of taking Sicily and Italy. That was the beginning of the retaking of Europe. That was the beginning of the defeat of the Third Reich. So it's an important chapter, and he wrote this whole book about it. But he tells a story in the book about General Eisenhower, who is at this point somewhere in North Africa. So his headquarters is in North Africa, and the Allies have defeated the Germans in North Africa. The fighting is just about over there. And Eisenhower calls all the reporters in. So these are all the American and British and other countries' reporters that are assigned to cover the Allied war effort. And he calls them all into a room, and they close the doors. And he proceeds to tell them, these reporters, exactly what the Allies are going to do 
about Sicily a month before they did it, a month before the landings. Like, I think the landings were in July, and this was June or something like that. Because no one knew. We knew that eventually there would be an Allied landing somewhere. Would it be in Greece? Would it be in Italy? Would it be in the Balkans? Where would it be? We didn't know. Nobody knew. And there was great speculation. And as reporters have always done and still do, when they don't know something, they speculate about it. So he called all the reporters. And now now, Eisenhower was a smart guy, right? He was no dummy and he wasn't naive. He called all the reporters in and he told them exactly what we were going to do a month before we did it. He did that because he said to them, I don't want you speculating in case you might speculate correctly. I wouldn't want you to guess where we're going to land and when. We need the element of surprise. So he told them with the understanding that they would keep it secret for a month. And then they would be allowed to report. Some of them even went on the landings. They dropped with the paratroopers or they went in on the uh, amphibious craft. A month before, the biggest secret up to that point in the war, he's telling the reporters, and they kept it a secret, every one of them. Could you do that today? Would you do that today? Can you imagine any anybody, whether they're military or civilian, doing that today? And I think, you know, people will debate, and I can tell you in journalism schools, this is a very popular thing to debate. Well, should they have kept the secret, or did they have a greater responsibility as journalists? Of course, in keeping the secret, they preserved at least some element of surprise. It turns out the Germans and the Italians were, were ready, uh, and it was it was a very tough, bloody, horrific fight to take Sicily, but there was a little bit of uncertainty. We, we didn't totally telegram what we were going to do. Telegraph, I should say. Um, so would we and could you do that today? And I think, I think there's a lot to unpack there. You know, there's the, what is your duty as a journalist? What is your duty as a patriot? What is your duty as a, as a free man or woman? Um, when freedom is what's at stake, you're fighting the forces of imprisonment and, and tyranny. Are you, um, and do you, and do you trust the people whose secret you're keeping? Like, do you feel like, Hey, you know, these, these governments are doing a good thing. They're doing the right thing. I want to, I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to give the secret away. Uh, it's interesting to think about it. It stopped me in my tracks when I read that. I never heard that particular anecdote before. It probably was not the only time in World War II that they were given that kind of advance notice of something with the understanding they wouldn't they wouldn't report it. They couldn't report it. On the JR poll, we asked you, are you feeling good about the midterms? 82% said yes. 18% said no. Well, a new question tomorrow. Um... When we start at 4, or you can find it anytime at KTSA.com. You have to scroll down a little bit, but uh, it's always at KTSA.com. Now, um, after tomorrow, 
then Friday, and Friday's going to be a little different because we're going to do our all-day uh, Radiothon for the Raul Jimenez uh, Thanksgiving dinner. So um, if you've never been with us before, if you're new to KTSA, the Raul Jimenez dinner is a long-standing Thanksgiving tradition here in San Antonio. It's 25,000-plus people at the convention center who are who are alone, who are homeless, who are shut-ins, who are estranged from their families or or, or for whatever reason would be alone and or without a meal. They are provided with a meal. It is brought to them. It is served to them at a table. Um, they have fellowship. They have people to be with. There's some entertainment. It's a, it's a, it's a really incredible event. And, and I really, the more I've thought about it recently, probably this year, the food isn't even the most important part of it. You know, we, we need to reconnect. People need to be with people. There's been too much loneliness and aloneness. And uh, this is the first time in three years it's been back as an in-person event. They kept it going during COVID, but they had to do it as meal delivery. And it was, of course, far fewer people as a, as a result. So anyway, Friday we'll be raising money for that, asking you to help us support it. Uh, you can give right now at KTSA.com, and there'll be... Uh, many opportunities to give on Friday. We'll do some special things. We'll be, uh, we'll, we're going to bring uh, Sean and Trey together with me here in the afternoon for a couple of hours, and we're going to bring back some people you're used to hearing on KTSA or haven't heard in a while on KTSA. We've got some some of our famous friends are going to stop by and help us out, so it's going to be a good time. We won't have a poll question. We won't have the dish, but I think we'll more than make up for that. Speaking of food, by the way, um, one of the big stories in the business world this week, I don't know if you've heard this or not, Kroger's, or Kroger, it's just Kroger, right? It's not an apostrophe. Kroger is buying Albertsons, or they're planning to, they're proposing to. And um, there are people saying it needs to be stopped by the government or investigated by the Federal Trade Commission. If Kroger was to acquire Albertsons, both of them are among the biggest supermarket chains in the country so if one buys the other they would become you know really big uh to give you some idea this would this would um basically uh approach in size uh the size of walmart in terms of employees and number of stores and so forth um and one of the things that's interesting about it we don't obviously have kroger's or albertson's or any of their associated brands, because both of them own several other sub-brands. We don't have those here in San Antonio. We used to have Albertsons. Um, but one of the things people have brought up is, is this dangerous? Because it would be a lot of the food supply and a lot of, um, you know, basically um, one industry in the hands of fewer people. It's consolidating. It's centralizing. And it's a legitimate thing to ask about. I, I, I think you could, you could make the case for the merger. You could make the case against the merger. I respect that. Uh, trust and antitrust is a, is a big thing in the history of our country, and it's an important thing. But I, I, always, have to, I always have to laugh a little bit when people go to the government and say, hey, uh, feds, don't allow a merger, don't allow um, the concentration of power or purchasing power 
the government, the federal government, is the ultimate example of the thing people are asking it to prevent. The federal government is the largest employer. The federal government is the largest purchaser. The federal government is the largest monopoly and, you know, uh, monopolizing power that there is. The federal government throws exponentially more weight around in our lives than any corporation. I don't care who you're talking about. Walmart, uh, you know, Microsoft, <laughs> Apple, oil companies. So isn't it funny that we go to them and we tug on their hem and we ask them to save us from what we think is monopoly? We are asking the ultimate monopoly to save us from monopoly. And I want to learn more about how this would work and how they plan to do it and what people who are in the know about this uh, think about it. I mean, I'm not, my mind is not made up about it. Um, I'm not sure that I believe there should be any intervention. I'm not sure that we should go to government and, and let government decide who can and cannot combine. Again, keeping in mind that they certainly don't stop themselves from doing it, do they? We'll talk about it and all the breaking news. See you back here tomorrow at 4.